Well, do turn back with me to 1 Corinthians for the last time in a little while. Chapter 14, and this week we'll read verses 1 to 19. Having laid out the way of love in a beautiful but fairly punchy way in chapter 13, Paul carries straight on, pursue love and literally be zealous for spiritual things especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue or a strange language speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to men for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I came to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different tongues in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the tongue, the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are zealous for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Well, amen. Sometimes the Bible takes us to strange, unfamiliar lands, does it not? I wonder if 1 Corinthians 14 feels a little bit like walking in on two old friends having a very impassioned debate about which weapon is more effective in close combat, the musket or the pike staff. You can't help admit it's an interesting discussion. And yet you're not exactly sure what a pike staff is, and you can't remember the last time you saw anyone fire a musket. Doesn't this feel a little bit like that? There's a lot here that arouses our curiosity, and yet 
we can't be exactly sure what Paul or the Corinthians actually meant by prophecy. And speaking in tongues is definitely not something we see today, at least in the gathered worship of Reformed Bible-believing Christians. We don't see it here in church on a Sunday. And yet, God has preserved this seemingly arcane historical debate for us because there's something going on underneath the specifics here that should be profoundly reassuring and encouraging and helpful for our own thinking about church and our place within it and what ought to shape our worship together. Paul has been creeping up to this chapter for quite some time now because eventually he has to tackle their question head on. They want to know what it is to be a spiritual. They want to hear more about the particular manifestations of the Holy Spirit that Corinthian culture really values. Listen to these wise words from Andy Gamble. Almost anything your culture values will invade your church in Christian dress. Whether that's a particular outlook on social justice or an attitude to environmentalism or on the value of education, all of those things that our culture values can take a Christian form that we can turn into a badge of spirituality, a way of signaling what kind of Christian we are. And the thing we've seen beyond doubt that the Corinthian culture really valued was impressive speech. Not the crude, Pauline Christian gospel of a bloodied and bruised servant. No speech that set you apart. Wise speech, erudite speech, mysterious spiritual speech. And so unsurprisingly, maybe, there was a particular speech gift they loved in Corinth the ability to speak in strange and mysterious languages, in the tongues of angels and men, as he put it in the last chapter. And there are other speech gifts that just don't really do it for them. The ability to say a few simple and encouraging words about the gospel, to take the roof off whatever was happening in the culture of the church and apply the gospel to it with precision and prescience like an Old Testament prophet, in other words, speaking a message of grace and repentance into real situations and the lives of real people, that sort of thing didn't really make the grade. And so Paul spent a lot of space so far laying the groundwork for this discussion. First in chapter 11, he showed us what was the real sign of a spiritual person not any one particular gift, but a heart that was won by Jesus Christ. Then he showed us what it actually means to belong to one body and share in one spirit. It means all of us have a duty of care to one another. No one is replaceable, no matter what you're gifting. And then finally, in chapter 13, he showed us what it looks like to die to self and to the Corinthian way of doing things and live instead by Jesus' way of love. And now at last, he can tackle the presenting issue, their fixation on one narrow gift as a sign of having arrived spiritually, and their denigration of other gifts that actually 
serves the church in love? What would it look like to pursue love there? The good things that God gives us as Christians, those gifts he's told us again and again are meant for building up the body in love. They're meant for serving others. But what chapter 14 is going to expose is that by abusing this gift of languages, the Corinthians were building back Babel. Far from building a body, uniting a church, they were dividing it. The irony is that when tongues appear in the book of Acts, it's as a reversal of God's curse right back at Babel, the start of the story. It was a sign that a new age had broken in with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus when the gospel would cross every barrier in our fractured race. But what was happening in Corinth? Well, the defining mark of some Corinthians seems to be a kind of spiritual pride. The very sin which led men to build that tower of human folly. A church marked by pride. And the result in Corinth, just as at Babel, was huge confusion. Unintelligible languages, Paul will tell us later on, can often be a sign of God's judgment not his blessing. And so church in Corinth had become a racket of confusion. Everyone clamoring to be heard and to demonstrate their spiritual prowess, just like the pagans, just like men and women back at Babel. Is that what Christians should look like? Well, no. Here's the big message then of these first 19 verses, which transcends their particular debate and says just as much to us today, the way of love makes church a place for plain, nourishing speech that builds us up together, not for private spiritual expressions which pull us apart. First, in verses 1 to 5, we've got a case study of Everything these three chapters have been about, Paul contrasts two gifts and their two goals. And the point is to show how love means that in their corporate life together as a church, they should lift one of those gifts higher than the other. Remember, he's not encouraging us as individual Christians to pine for gifts that we don't have. He said exactly the opposite. But corporately, as a church... They're to be zealous for those spiritual things that major on what the Holy Spirit is really all about, strengthening God's people. And in Corinth, that means prophecy over tongues. Now, we've got to be intellectually honest here and admit that we can't know exactly what those things look like in Corinth. We have a lot of modern baggage and assumptions about both of those words that get in the way. But Paul does give us here a fair bit to go on as he contrasts one with the other. For each gift, he'll tell us who they speak to and what they speak about and who they speak for, who they serve. First tongues in verse 2. And we know, at least in the book of Acts, that the gift of other languages was meant to be communicative, It wasn't as if at Pentecost God took away Christians' brains 
and to quote Calvin, just had them mimicking other languages without understanding, the way a parrot or a crow might mimic a human. No, the miracle that day was that people were able to preach the gospel in a way that the world could understand. It was a signpost that the world had changed, that a new era in salvation history had begun. But it seems here as if something a little different was happening in Corinth. These languages seem to have become much more like a private expression of devotion to the Lord, where individuals might pray or sing or give thanks in a way that truly expresses their inner groanings and praise, but which they can't quite express for themselves in intelligible words. And that is a good thing in itself, not a bad thing, that we can do that sometimes. Paul wants it for everyone. He does it himself. He talks in Romans chapter 8 about how sometimes when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit prays along with us in groaning too deep for words. Maybe that's what's going on here. And that is a wonderful kindness of God, is it not? His children don't always need the right words before we can pray to him. Sometimes you will sit with a brother in tears and there is just nothing you can say. Sometimes as Christians, we demand more of each other than God himself demands of us. People get very snotty when believers pray things in church like, I thank you, Jesus, for sending us your son, as if there was some terrible Trinitarian heresy just waiting to pounce and eat us all up before we get to the amen, when in reality, that's just a child stuttering in love to their father who takes joy in it. We don't have to always have all the right words. God loves to listen. So if what we're talking about here is the Spirit supplying those words to our prayers, well, it is a kindness of our Father that he would do that. It's a beautiful thing. But remember what Paul said in Romans 8? It's something God does for us in our weakness. The very last thing it was meant to be was something we could show off with and boast about in public. Tongues, verse 2, are speaking to God, not to man, not to other people, because no one else can understand that sort of groaning. And what you speak is a mystery something that's no use to anyone unless it's explained and demystified. Well, what about prophecy in verse 3? How does that compare? Prophecy, here at least, is exactly the opposite, isn't it? You speak to man and not to God. And what you speak is anything but a mystery. You build people up. You encourage them. You console them. Prophecy here doesn't seem to mean fortune-telling. It's not predicting the future. It seems like it's much more to do with applying the gospel where it's needed right now, which, by the way, is exactly what the Old Testament prophets majored on. Now, there is a place, there was a place in the early church for a distinctive capital P sort of prophecy. The Bible hadn't been finished yet, there was a lot about what Jesus had done that people needed to understand in that first age. So Paul talks about prophets right alongside apostles in Ephesians 2. 
meaning New Testament prophets, and talking about them as a foundational gift for the church, not something we should expect to continue today. But here it seems, don't you think, like a pretty plain vanilla kind of gospel speech. It looks like something different. We don't always come to church, do we, looking for novelty, Michelin-starred food. Most of the time, we just need to be nourished and fed. There's a reason we cook good old-fashioned bangers and mash again and again for our families. It's because it does us good. And it seems to me like a similar thing here. The church doesn't get fed by learning new and exciting things every Sunday. Most of the sermons we ever hear, if we're honest, we never remember, do we? But they did us good at the time. They nourished us, they fed us, they edified and encouraged and comforted. And so the heart of the matter comes in verse 4. Tongues might be a wonderful thing, but at their core, they are for building up ourselves. Unless someone is able to translate what you're saying for everyone else, then tongues are a fundamentally self-centered thing. Prophecy is for building up the church. It is fundamentally other-person-centered. In other words, the kind of plain gospel speaking that is fundamentally an act of love, the kind of love we just had a whole chapter explaining for us, which makes it, in Paul's framework, a far greater use of your gifts. Whatever tongues had come to mean in Corinth, they were majoring in public worship on what is essentially an expression of private devotion and spirituality. Unintelligible tongues was a kind of self-directed worship, all about me, but I do it when we're together. Similar maybe to the way Christians today will sometimes close our eyes in church and raise our hands and worship in a kind of walled-off bubble of private experience. You might be having a wonderful time, and it is genuinely very meaningful and fulfilling for you, but it doesn't build up anyone else. And if it doesn't edify the body, it doesn't belong in church where the body meets. Now, that is not to say that we should never express joy or devotion far from it. Think of those beautiful videos that we enjoyed recently of Christians in Malawi singing and dancing together. That was a very different thing, wasn't it, to what's happening here? They might have come from a culture that is different to ours, a little more freely expressive. But I think what you saw in those videos was something far more faithful to New Testament worship than a lot of Western individualistic worship is. What you saw there was a shared expression of joy in the Lord, something that was communicative and instructive. It was toddlers and grown men, boys and girls, all together rejoicing in one God. Well, that's the basic thesis then of this chapter. Be zealous for the things of the Spirit that build others up because that is what corporate worship is meant to do. Public worship is not so much expressive as it is formative. What we do in church shapes and forms and builds us up. 
And that makes Christian worship a very different kind of thing to the pagan version, where pagan worship might be ecstatic and uncontrolled. Christian worship is to be plain and intelligible and helpful for everyone, even when we sing or we dance or we speak in tongues. It isn't so much something that comes from within as we each express our own spirituality to the world. No, it's something that comes to us from without and shapes us together. It's something God gives us together through one another. And so the rest of the passage is really teasing out and applying that contrast between those two approaches. And three particular ways Paul shows them that their obsession with private spiritual experience was building back Babel, pulling apart what they were meant to be uniting. Self-directed worship is lifeless, and it's alienating, and it's elitist. First, when our gathered worship is marked by a kind of spiritual speech or practice that no one can understand, it's lifeless when we were made for life and meaning. Paul's already contrasted them, hasn't he, with lifeless and speechless idols. Now he contrasts them with lifeless instruments. And the point is that unless the sound an instrument makes is clear, then it's useless. What good would a bugle be at summoning troops to battle if nobody understood the noise it makes? And the point of the contrast is that a human being is so much more than a lifeless instrument. Your voice is the most complex and glorious instrument on the planet, given to you by God, not just to be a living instrument, but a life-giving instrument. We speak, and by his spirit, the dead come to life, the broken are built up, the downhearted are encouraged, the guilty and the fallen are comforted. That is what Christian speech is meant to do. The human voice is the most beautiful instrument God ever made. And just like the flute and the bugle, your voice has a job to do, but it's richer and deeper and full of meaning, verse 10. Calvin says the human tongue ought to be an index to the mind. Our speech is a meaningful thing, no matter what language you're speaking. So why take that precious, God-glorifying, living instrument, verse 9, and use it for something that means nothing to anyone? Sometimes in church, we do and we say things purely with the intent of looking like the right sort of Christian. We use words and jargon that are a kind of code to insiders. We pray in language that is so convoluted and pompous that it's almost funny to listen to because we aren't primarily worrying about what others will understand by what we say. We're worrying about how it might sound to them. If I pray how I speak, will I sound very spiritual? That isn't that different, is it, to the way the Corinthians seem to use their tongues? unintelligible speech that was more about spiritual expression than real spiritual growth. 
But verse 9, we might as well be prattling into the air. It's lifeless. Unfruitful, verse 13. What if Paul came to Corinth talking like that? Well, two things would have happened. First, he would have won their love and admiration in a heartbeat. Isn't verse 18 a shock? The truth is, friends, I speak in tongues more than any of you. Here is a church who despise him. And yet all along, he had everything he needed to dazzle them. Imagine you're interviewing for a job, and they clearly don't believe you're qualified, when all along you have an Oxford degree sitting in your pocket, and you refuse to pull it out. What an incredible death to self that must have been for Paul, who must have longed so much to win them round, because he knew the second thing that would have happened if he'd come to Corinth like that, showing off with big talk. Verse 6 he would have done them no good whatsoever. Without some meaningful revelation or knowledge of God or prophecy or teaching they could understand, he would have been nothing more than a clanging gong, a cymbal clashing in the wind. In other words, if Paul had not been so full of self-denying, Jesus-like love, there would be no church today. It's worth asking, isn't it, what benefit our words, our churches are leaving behind us? Is the average contemporary church service building up something lasting and loving, or is it all show and performance and incomprehensible jargon? Lifeless, when we're made for life and meaning, and secondly, that obsession with unintelligible spiritual experience, verse 11, it was alienating. Literally, it makes barbarians of us to one another. That barbarian word is the incredibly unwoke way in which Greek speakers would mock the languages of foreigners. It's onomatopoeic. The word barbarian, it it sounds just how our crude British or Latin or Hebrew accents must have sounded to the Greeks, burbling. Well, what a horrible, horrible thing it is to be made to feel a foreigner like that by fellow Christians. And yet, isn't that what happens when we come into a church where everyone speaks in a kind of insider code? You feel like a foreigner. The minute you open your mouth, it's obvious you just don't have the right vocabulary. You can't express the gospel the way they do, in a way that makes you look sound enough, or reformed enough, or charismatic enough, or spiritual enough. And what could be more alienating than a service filled with some sort of individual spiritual performance that you can't make head or tail of? You're completely left out. It does the very opposite of building a church up. It pulls us apart, sets the spiritual against the barbarian. When the whole miracle of gathered worship is that God is uniting the world in his son, that's what's happening here. These barbarians are meant to be brothers. 
It's lifeless, it's alienating, and so finally, it's elitist. Isn't there a very telling word Paul uses in verse 16 to describe those who are alienated by that Corinthian use of tongues? Outsiders. I don't think he means they're non-Christians because he'll distinguish the two in the next paragraph. So who are the outsiders? Well, the Greek word is idiotes, someone unskilled, uninitiated, someone not in the know. That's where we get our English word idiot. And that tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? about how the spiritual half of the church in Corinth viewed the others. They might all trust Jesus, but the way they used gifts like tongues split the church into insiders and outsiders. You might be giving thanks marvelously, verse 16, and those of you in the know are being built up wonderfully. But what is meant to be happening when we pray and we praise, and we sing together in church. Everyone is meant to be brought inside. When one person prays, all of us add our amen. Our worship is meant to gather everyone up in Christ. And so those idiots, the Corinthians look down on, the unskilled, they ought to be right at the heart of things. Their gifts are as valuable to them as everyone else. Well, how do we make a church look more like that, where everyone is valued? Once again, it's Paul who gives us the example, isn't it? Follow me as I follow Jesus. That's been his mantra through this book. He had it in his power to be the greatest guru and conference speaker that Corinth had ever seen. He had it in his power to make them love him the way he must have longed to be loved. But in church, notice that, in church, I would rather speak five plain words with my mind than 10,000 words to get your applause. In other words, I won't pursue your love. I'll pursue loving you. Isn't that the mark of a truly spirit-filled person? They don't elevate those gifts that all begin and end with themselves. They prize the ones that build others up. You can say a lot, can't you, in five plain words? Christ is on his throne. You are not your own. Plain speech like that will not win you any prizes, but it will feed and nourish and comfort your brothers and sisters. And that, ultimately, is what ought to shape the way we worship together. It is just as common today, I think, as it ever was to think of church in a very different way. Worship is primarily expressive of my own spiritual journey. That's why I'm here. And don't get me wrong, there is a huge place for adoration in our corporate worship. We come to adore and praise the God we love, We come to delight together in him. We should probably be much better at that. But church is not about me with my eyes closed, getting closer to Jesus. It's about us together drawing near to God through our priest and king.
a king who never leaves anyone behind. Well, let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit and through your living word, you have broken into the chaos and confusion of our rebellious human hearts and put a new song in our mouths, a song of praise to the Savior who bled for us, all of us, to make us yours. And so we pray that we would be a people who speak to one another warmly and truthfully and helpfully and plainly about Jesus and his gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for so often thinking more about our own spiritual experience or how we might look than the good of our brothers and sisters. Fill us, we pray, with the knowledge of your love for us in Christ. And so free us from all performing to share that love with one another. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.